0: Time. But for now I'm just blessing y'all with this one A continuation of the first You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train That was an excerpt from the Vinnie Paz song Writings on Disobedience Greetings and welcome to You Can't Be Neutral This is the inevitable evolution of the Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020, and Howie 2020 podcast It's more of the same mixed in with something new. it's an excursion through the social and political landscape of media and my mind. You can follow on Twitter at YCB neutral you can find out more at you can't be neutral.com you'll find all the back episode yeah this is episode number two so there's only one there but you'll also find all the back episodes of Bernie 2016 Bernie 2020 and Howie 2020 on that same page. You'll also find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast and all my podcasts free and independent. First up, we have a story from Brett Wilkins. This is published at CommonDreams.org. On October 22, 2010, WikiLeaks published the Iraq War Logs, a colossal compendium of nearly 400,000 classified U.S. Army field reports, revealing what founder Julian Assange called intimate details of the war, including war crimes and other serious human rights abuses perpetrated by American and coalition troops, private contractors, and Iraqi government and paramilitary forces. It was the largest leak in U.S. military history, and a stunned world demanded justice. However, in the decades since then, only the whistleblowers who revealed the crimes detailed in the logs were ever seriously punished, while the architects and the perpetrators of the atrocities continued to enjoy impunity. The publication of the Iraq War Logs was a culmination of a year full of WikiLeaks revelations regarding U.S. and Allied conduct during the so-called War on Terror. Early in the year, U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning leaked the collateral murder video, which shows U.S. Apache helicopters crews laughing and joking while massacring a group of Iraqi civilians, including journalists and shooting children. In July 2010, WikiLeaks published the Afghan War Logs, which contained over 75,000 classified Army reports detailing war crimes committed by coalition forces in Afghanistan. None of the Bush or Obama administration officials who planned or executed the illegal war, nor any of the field commanders or even rank-and-file troops connected with any of the crimes revealed in the logs, were ever seriously punished. The whistleblowers, on the other hand, suffered tremendously for exposing the truth. Both Manning and Assange were charged under the 1917 Espionage Act. Manning was convicted in 2013 and sentenced to 35 years in prison, although her sentence was commuted by President Barack Obama just before he left office in January 2017. Assange is today imprisoned in Britain's notorious Belmarsh Prison as he awaits possible extradition to the United States, where he faces up to 175 years behind bars. Most likely, in a supermax facility, a former warden described as a, quote, fate worse than death. Both Assange and Manning have suffered abuse that prominent human rights advocates have called torture. The aggressive prosecution of Manning and Assange is a deliberate attempt To silence would-be whistleblowers, says Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. The Obama administration charged Chelsea Manning and the Trump administration indicted and is trying to extradite Julian Assange in an attempt to punish the messengers, to obscure the message, and protect the real culprits, Cohn told Common Dreams. Their prosecutions are calculated to chill the willingness of would-be whistleblowers to reveal, and journalists and media outlets to publish, material critical of U.S. policy. WikiLeaks' publication of the Afghan war logs, however, has led to the opening of a war crimes investigation of U.S. leaders in the International Criminal Court, Cohn added. Asked whether Assange's prospects for freedom would improve if Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden defeats President Donald Trump next month, Cohn said that, quote, Biden is more likely to follow Obama's policy. He refrained from prosecuting Assange because the administration couldn't distinguish between what WikiLeaks did and what the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, and El Pay also did. Assange's lawyers think he faces a worse fate if Trump is re-elected, she added. Cohn said the government hasn't been successful in silencing whistleblowers as in it intended, although there haven't been any Mannings, Assange's, or Edward Snowden's of late. Last year, a whistleblower in the intelligence community revealed evidence of Trump's using the power of his office to solicit foreign interference in the 2020 election. And in May, another whistleblower complained that, that some federal COVID-19 vaccine contracts were awarded based on political connections. If Assange successfully resists extradition, or escapes a conviction if he is extradited to the U.S. for trial, that would encourage future whistleblowers to come forward when they see evidence of criminal government activity, said Cohn. That's one of the reasons it's so critical to oppose the U.S. government's persecution of Assange. The Iraq war logs comprised a staggering collection of documents offering an unprecedented inside look at the U.S. war and occupation, then in its eighth year. The bombshell revelations contained in the 391,832 Army field reports showed. The coalition officials lied about not recording the number of Iraqi civilians killed by coalition forces. General Tommy Franks infamously declared that, We don't do body counts in the early days of the U.S. led invasion. And Bush administration and Pentagon officials repeatedly said they did not track civilian casualties. Some 66,000 of the 109,000 total Iraqi deaths recorded by U.S. authorities from 2004 to 2009 were civilians. These figures were still likely an undercount of the true civilian death toll. For example, no civilian deaths are recorded from the two brutal battles for Fallujah in 2004, although the monitor group Iraq Body Count said at least 1,153 men, women, and children died. U.S. troops often falsely claim that civilians they killed were insurgents, as was the case with the, quote, collateral murder video. U.S. troops killed nearly 700 civilians, including pregnant women and people with mental illness, for coming too close to checkpoints. American and other foreign mercenaries and contractors killed many Iraqi civilians. U.S. officials failed to investigate hundreds of reports of torture, rape, murder, and other crimes committed by Iraqi security forces with impunity. American forces often handed over suspected insurgents and other detainees to Iraqi forces known for murder, torture, and other atrocities, including the notorious Wolf Brigade. Quote, the stated aims for going into that war of improving the human rights situation, improving the rule of law, did not eventuate, Assange said at the time. In terms of raw numbers of people arbitrarily killed, That worsened the situation in Iraq. International media published many of the leaked documents sparking global outrage and condemnation of the United States and the already tremendous unpopular war. The U.S. corporate media, however, downplayed and whitewashed the American lies and war crimes revealed in the logs and instead focused on revelations of Iranian involvement in Iraq and abuses committed by private contractors and Iraqi forces. Almost immediately, the U.S. government went into attack mode. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton condemned the release, claiming apparently without irony that it, quote, puts the lives of United States and its partners, service members, and civilians at risk. Assange rightfully countered that there was no evidence anyone was harmed by the leaks. Regardless, the Australian national was widely condemned in the U.S., with prominent Republicans and others, including a television game show host and a businessman named Donald Trump, calling for his execution. Meanwhile, U.S. military leaders kept on lying. General George Casey insisted that U.S. policy, quote, all along was if American soldiers encountered prisoner abuse, to stop it and report it immediately up the U.S. chain of command and up the Iraqi chain of command. The horrific torture and abuse at Abu Ghraib prison and throughout Iraq tell a very different, and often deadly, truth. Not only are all these real and serious crimes Exposed by these whistleblowers and these documents not been pursued and and those people perpetrating those crimes not been brought to any kind of justice. But in the United States, by and large, they've been forgotten about completely. This is this is a release. The Iraq war logs release was 10 years ago. You know, if you're a 20-year-old, that may sound like a very long time, but if you're 50-plus like me, it's not so long ago. And to have, to have nothing more said or done outside of what's currently happening to Julian Assange is just compounding the crime. And um, as you noticed in that piece, and you will notice throughout the other pieces that I'm going to cover on this episode, some of these pieces were written before it was widely known who the winner of the U.S. presidential election was. So some of these go back and forth. Some of these were as or shortly after it became known that Joe Biden was the president-elect And some were written after the election, but prior to the real, uh, complete understanding of how those vote counts were going to end up. Next piece up is by Caitlin Johnstone. You can find this at katijohnstone.medium.com. U.S. Murder Machine, now under competent management. Joe Biden's inauguration as a 46th president of the United States is now all but certain. In order to have any chance of successfully advancing his legal narrative of electoral shenanigans, President Trump would have to both, A, really want to remain president, and B, have the backing of sufficiently large power structures, neither of which appear to be the case. When you're a Republican president and Murdoch is actively fighting against you, It doesn't matter what the facts are. The narrative war is lost. Trump is done. Forrest Gump voice. I know. I'm not going to actually attempt it, though. And just like that, the Russians were gone. Every Kremlin agent hiding under every bed, every St. Petersburg troll lurking around every corner, every Russian hacker we've been told was working around the clock to destroy America's imaginary democracy? Poof. We're not hearing a word about them anymore. If the Russians had really been trying to influence this election, as we've been told for years, they most definitely would, and if foreign election interference really is an act of war comparable to 9-11 in Pearl Harbor, as we've been told for years that it is, then it should be just as big a deal regardless of which candidate win. Yet we're not hearing a peep on the subject from the blue checkmarked commentariat who've been shrieking about the Russian menace for four years. We have, oh so very predictably, been hearing a fair bit about China though. Liberals are heaving a sigh of relief around the country, not because their actual lives have gotten much worse as a result of Trump's presidency. They have not. But because it means, at long last, they'll stop being psychologically abused by the mass media who've been screaming hysterical nonsense in their faces and making them feel crazy. Bit by bit, cautious celebrations are beginning to erupt from coast to coast. Okay, maybe just on the coasts. As Biden's January inauguration becomes less of a possibility and more of a certainty. It's not the thunderous rejoicing it will be when they make it official, but little expressions of glee are popping up everywhere. Kids are being hugged. Parents are being called. Bold tie choices are being made. Quote, At long last, there will be adults in the White House again, goes the common refrain. And I couldn't agree more. I think we're all breathing a lot easier knowing that the U.S. government will now be run by grown-ups who murder people instead of emotionally stunted children who murder people. We'll all sleep so much better knowing that there are adults in the room who murder people and that it's the insatiable U.S. murder monster is under competent management once more. And make no mistake, murdering people is what the Biden administration will be doing. This will, in fact, be the only president in recent memory who actually campaigned on being more interventionist and attacking his opponent for not being hawkish enough. Trump ran on a platform of scaling back U.S. interventionism, as did Obama, as did even Bush, but Biden did the opposite. He is beginning from a much more hawkish position than his predecessors right off the bat. Add to this the bloodthirsty ghouls who appear likely to wind up in Biden's cabinet and the hawkish rhetoric of his foreign policy advisors, and you're likely looking at a president who will serve as an empty vessel for whatever the U.S. war machine wants to pour into him. Mass murders are being planned, and it's going to get ugly. It's odd, you know. U.S. political leaders are so revered by the media and so normalized on our screens that it's easy to forget how many children they've killed. You see the doddering old man eating ice cream enough times and it becomes difficult to marry him in your mind with the butcher who played a crucial leading role in advancing the Iraq invasion which killed a million people and ushered in an unprecedented new age of military expansionism. But the important thing is that he won't be making rude tweets and bungling coup attempts in the global South. He will be a competent, grown-up, like the daddy we always wanted. He will pilot the insatiable death machine with grace and decency, right into the homes of the world's most vulnerable. Next up is a piece written by David Sirota. You can find David Sirota's writings at dailyposter.com. They're trying to silence AOC because money never sleeps. We're all exhausted, and understandably so. It's been an unspeakably horrific year. The election psychologically drained everyone, and we all just want a break. But here's the thing. Money never sleeps, and money is already hard at work trying to make sure nothing fundamentally changes in politics. And if nothing fundamentally changes in Washington, then everything is going to change for the worse in the real world. Since the election was called for Joe Biden, there has been a multi-tiered effort to blame disappointing election results on progressives, even as exit polls and voting results show the progressive organizing rescued Democrats from the jaws of a presidential defeat. While the country was celebrating the defeat of Trump, here's what the voices of big money have been doing since the election. Democratic leaders are insisting that the party must abandon modestly progressive health care positions in order to boost the party's chances in Georgia, even though polling says exactly the opposite. Republican John Kasich, who was given a DNC speaking slot by Team Biden and who nonetheless failed to help Democrats win his home state of Ohio, went on CNN to bash progressives, insisting that Biden's top priority should be appeasing Trump voters. Ian Bremmer, a Morning Joe character who was a reliable barometer of elite thought, echoed Kasich suggesting that the first thing Democrats should do is reach out and appease Trump supporters. Joe Scarborough himself asserted that the election proves Democrats must run away from the left, even though their entire strategy was running away from the left, and that strategy resulted in disappointing down-ballot losses. Politico published a list of alleged frontrunners for Biden cabinet slots filled mostly with corporate-friendly Democrats and Republicans, The American Petroleum Institute and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are publicly offering to work with the Biden administration, pledging a desire to, quote, support bipartisan policies and, quote, breakthrough the gridlock. As GOP operatives at the Lincoln Project explore turning their operation into a media empire, they are turning their attacks on U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of the party's few stars with a large national following. Democratic leaders and House Blue Dog Caucus, the corporate wing of the party, have spent the week attacking progressives, blaming them for a handful of moderate freshman lawmakers' losses, even as data shows that Democrats in swing districts lost vote share as they moved further and further to the right. And one fact I saw today as well said that all 100-plus congresspeople who were up for re-election who were signed on to Medicare for All won their re-election. And all but one of the uh, congresspeople that were signed on to the Green New Deal won their re-election. Before the election, I told you that no matter the election outcome, The left would be blamed or shamed. That doesn't make me Nostradamus. It was an obvious truth, even if it was taboo to dare speak. Just as Republicans always spin every economic policy as a reason to cut rich people's taxes, corporate Democrats and their allies have a left-bashing propaganda machine powered by a finely-tuned algorithm designed to silence progressive leaders whether it's AOC, Bernie Sanders, or anyone else, and t- to turn every election result into a rationale to protect billionaires, corporate power, and the status quo. The election, though, was the opposite of a demand for stasis. Indeed, Democrats almost lost because they once again let Trump portray himself as the candidate of economic change, and they only got away with that because COVID and organizing defeated Trump's re-election bid If they run back the same campaign in a COVID-free environment, there's a good chance they would lose in a landslide. Here's what I told NPR All Things Considered yesterday. The focus on trying to moderate a message in order to attract so-called Biden Republicans, that was a failure. The data shows that the better strategy is to try to pull out your own voters and those who haven't been voting And I do think the Democrats did a decent job of that. But the amount of money, and we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, that went into focusing on trying to appeal to a mythical Republican swing voter, the data shows that was not a good strategy. An inanimate object should have been able to win in a landslide against Donald Trump in the middle of a pandemic and economic crisis. The other thing that comes out in the polling data is that Democrats paid a price for not having a very strong economic message. I mean, I do think the Biden campaign was shrewd in some of what it did, focusing on the pandemic and the like. But without having a strong economic message repeated over and over and over again, you saw an exit poll that showed Donald Trump won 82% of voters who said that the economy was their top issue. That is a huge problem. It was a huge problem in the election. I'm certainly glad that Joe Biden won. But moving forward, if the Democrats do not have a strong populist progressive economic message heading into 2022 and 2024, we could get something worse than Donald Trump. I'm sorry to be the one to deliver the news, but here's the truth. As exhausted as you feel, as tired of this shit as we all are, There is just no rest for the weary. Assuming you're not psyched about the idea of nothing fundamentally changing, then we're going to have to fight. And the first way to fight is to know some basic truths. Disengaging and going back to brunch is a formula for a repeat of 2010 and 2016. Commit yourself to being involved in causes and groups That will demand local state and federal lawmakers enact policies which materially improve people's lives participate in demonstrations and protests in your own community focused on concrete policy outcomes sending money to sham groups like the lincoln project for them to light it on fire or use it to set up a conservative media outlet is destructive if you want to pitch in resources Give it to a news organization doing journalism that holds politicians accountable. Run for an office in the 2022 election. And don't be afraid to run in a primary against a Democrat who is part of the problem. These are not perfect solutions and everyone is going to have to try and decide which specific organizations, causes, and campaigns they're going to participate in. But the point is that the next few weeks and months are going to determine the next four years. If you hear people tell you to just shut up and celebrate and take some time off, they're ignoring the insomnia of money. Corporate interests don't rest. They're like a T-1000 Terminator, interminably pursuing their prime directives, which is to continue enriching the billionaire class. The election has not deterred them. Which means we sleep at our own peril. Next up is Ajamu Baraka, published at BlackAgendaReport.com. If you remember 2016, you might remember Ajamu Baraka. You probably don't, unless you are a supporter of the Greens and Jill Stein. Ajamu Baraka was Jill Stein's running mate. He was the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party in 2016. Confronting bipartisan repression in the U.S.-led axis of domination beyond Election Day. No matter who sits in the white people's house, we will have to continue to fight for social justice, democracy, and people-centered human rights. Our survival depends on seeing this violent, barbarian behemoth for what it is. Chaos, violence, legal challenges, voter suppression, and party suppression all culminated in the pathetic display of democratic degeneration on Election Day. After two decades of losing wars, plus the economic collapse of 2008, the response to COVID-19, and now the election debacle, if there were any doubts, the U.S. is a morally exhausted empire in irreversible decline that would have been erased with yesterday's anti-democratic spectacle. Democratic Party propagandists and frightened leftists are desperate. They tell their supporters and the public that the republic will not survive another term of Donald Trump. They point to his despicable racist descriptions of of undocumented migrant workers from Mexico, his characterization of some global South nations, his misogyny, his crude and obvious white supremacy, his authoritarian proclivities, and his pathological dishonesty, among his many character flaws, as reasons why he must be stopped. However, For those of us who have been historically subjected to the colonial fascism that is the U.S. settler project, the liberal left argument that the Trump regime represents some fundamental departure from previous administrations that were equally committed to white power and that he is an existential threat, to whom we are not clear, remains unpersuasive. As the Biden and Trump drama plays out, We ask from our experiences some simple questions on what might happen when a victor emerges. Will either candidate really have the ability to restore the millions of jobs lost during the current economic crisis? Will the illegal subversion of Venezuela and Nicaragua stop and the blockade of Cuba end? Will the prison industrial complex that is housing tens of thousands of the black and brown economically redundant be closed? Will the charges be dropped against Edward Snowden and the extradition demand for Julian Assange end? Will Gaza continue to be the largest open air prison on the planet? Will the U.S. reverse its decision to deploy new intermediate-range missiles that will be equipped with nuclear warheads targeting Russia in Europe and China in the Asia-Pacific? Will the Saudi and Obama-originated war on Yemen end? Will the U.S. settler-colonial state really defund the police and the military? What is this new fascism the Latte Left talks about? What is this existential threat? For most of us, the threat has always been existential. When colonial Nazism that was inspired by the U.S. Jim Crow South was applied in Europe with its violence and racism, it was only then that it took on a different moral and political characterization. The racist French government launches a domestic terror campaign against Muslims in the country while bombing Africans in Africa and overthrowing their governments. The European Union gives a Human Rights Award to a political opposition in Venezuela that burns black people alive because those black people are seen as Maduro supporters. Meanwhile, NATO, the military wing of the U.S. and European white supremacy, expands into South America to support the Monroe Doctrine that morally justifies U.S. regional domination. But fascism is coming to the US, they cry. For those of us who reside in the colonized spaces of empire, leading with uncritical emotionalism as we confront and attempt to deal with the Trump phenomenon is a self indulgent diversion we cannot afford. That is because for us, the consequences truly are life threatening. In occupied Palestine, Venezuela, Yemen, the south side of chicago haiti the concentration camps for indigenous peoples called reservations as well as cancer alley in louisiana our survival depends on seeing this violent barbarian behemoth for what it is we must have no sentimental delusions about the difference between the governance of either of the two ruling class dominated parties for us both parties are ongoing criminal enterprises that are committed to one thing and one thing only, ultimately serving the interests of the capitalist ruling class by any means necessary. It is in that commitment that we, the colonized, the excluded, the killable, who experience the murderous sanctions that deny us food and life-preserving medicines, the killer cops who slowly snuff out our lives with their knee on our necks, the deadly military attacks that destroy our ancient nations and turn us into refugees, the subversion of our political systems, the theft of our precious resources, and the literal draining of the value of our lives through the super-exploitation of our labor. For us, we ask, what will be the difference if Biden wins? Wasn't Biden part of the administration that conspired with the Department of Homeland Security and Democratic mayors to repress the Occupy movement once it became clear The movement could not be co-opted. Didn't Obama place Asada Shakur as the first woman on the FBI's most wanted terrorists list and increase the bounty on her head? A recent release of FBI documents revealed it was during the Obama-Biden years that the, quote, Black Identity Extremist label was created. The illegal subversion of Venezuela began with Bush, but intensified under Obama. The sanctions slapped on that country that were expanded under Trump have resulted in tens of thousands of innocent people dying from lack of medicines. It was the Obama-Biden administration that decided to devote over $1 trillion to upgrade the U.S. nuclear arsenal over the next decade. Democratic and Republican strategists support the white supremacist NATO structure, the, quote, pivot to Asia, and the insane theory being advanced by military strategists who are wargaming a nuclear first strike strategy against Russia and China that they believe can be successful in destroying those countries' intercontinental ballistic missiles while the missiles are still in their launchers. That is why the Trump administration pulled out of the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and has so far failed to renew the START nuclear treaty with Russia, scheduled to end in February 2021. Not being confused by the liberal framework that advances a cartoonish understanding of fascism that Trump's bombastic theatrics evokes in the public imagination, it is clear the threat of increased authoritarianism the use of military force, repression, subversion, illegal sanctions, theft, and rogue-state gangsterism is on the agenda of both capitalist parties in the U.S. and the Western European colonizer states. No matter who sits in the white people's house after the election, we'll have to continue to fight for social justice, democracy, and people-centered human rights. It is important to restate that last sentence, because the left in the U.S. is experiencing extreme anxiety with the events around the election. They want and need to have order, stability, and good feelings about their nation again. But for those of us from the colonized zones of non-being, anything that creates psychological chaos, disorder, delegitimization, disruption of the settler colonial state, and demoralization of its supporters is of no concern for us. Unlike the house slave, who will fight harder than the massa to put out the flames in the plantation house, we call to the ancestors to send a strong breeze. Next up, a piece by Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker, the Green presidential and vice presidential candidate in 2020 and this was published November 3rd on Election Day. Our campaign has just begun to organize and fight for real solutions to the life-or-death issues of climate, poverty, racism, and nuclear war for which the two-capitalist party system of corporate rule has no solutions. We are running out of time on these issues. Real solutions can't wait. In the immediate days ahead, our campaign will be in the courts and in the streets if necessary, to fight for full and accurate vote counts so the real winners of this year's elections take office. Regardless of the relative balance of power after this election between the two corporate parties in the presidency, the Senate, the House, and the state houses, our campaign will mobilize support for our demands and for green and independent socialist candidates in the next election cycle. We will not be waiting for future elections to mobilize support for our demands. We will be educating the public, building coalitions, and mobilizing actions to advance our program. To advance this program, we need more than single-issue organizations and campaigns that compete with each other for attention, time, and money. We need to build a political party that brings issues and constituencies around a common program and mutual support. Building that party must become a common effort of Green and other independent socialist and progressive parties and groups who want a united mass party of the working people and all who love peace, justice, freedom, and the environment. Uniting the existing independent left is not enough. We must organize into the party the people who now vote in low numbers because they feel the two corporate parties don't represent them. These people are disproportionately working-class, people of color, and young. They are the future mass base of an independent party of the Green and Socialist Left. The path forward to becoming a major party in U.S. politics is from the bottom up. We must build a mass membership party rooted in strong local chapters that can elect thousands to local office, and on that foundation to state legislatures and the House as we go into the 2020s. What follows are the key demands we will be fighting for. The Green New Deal Enact an eco-socialist Green New Deal for zero to negative carbon emissions and 100% clean energy by 2030 because that is what climate science indicates we must do to avert catastrophic climate calamity. It must be eco-socialist emphasizing public enterprise and planning in the energy, transportation, transportation and manufacturing sectors in order to rapidly transform all productive sectors power, transportation, buildings, manufacturing, and agriculture to zero emissions and 100% clean energy. Immediate Green New Deal demands include ban fracking, a ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure. No nuclear power plants, no new nuclear power plants, and a rapid phase-out of existing nukes. Ban new petrochemical plastics infrastructure and replace petrochemical plastics with biodegradable bioplastics. Adjust transition. Up to five years of existing wages and benefits for displaced workers and five years of tax revenues lost by local governments due to the clean energy transition. The Economic Bill of Rights. Working-class life expectancies are in decline after 45 years of wage stagnation, while housing, health care, and college costs have risen dramatically. The Economic Bill of Rights will end poverty and economic insecurity. A Job Guarantee A public job meeting community-defined needs for social services and public works for all willing and able to work who cannot find a living-wage job in the private sector. A Guaranteed Income Above Poverty An income guarantee built into the federal progressive income tax structure so the people whose income is below the poverty line receive regular income to bring them above the poverty line. Affordable Housing Build quality public housing until everyone has an affordable housing option. Medicare for All Reintroduce into Congress the legislation for a community-controlled National Health Service, the Josephine Butler United States Health Service Act, which was before the Congress from 1977 until 2010. It will provide all medically necessary services to all U.S. residents, financed by progressive taxation, with no out-of-pocket cost to patients. It will socialize and democratize not only health care payments through a single public payer, but also health care delivery through public hospitals and clinics, health care providers as salaried public employees, and locally elected health boards for community control and accountability. Lifelong Public Education Tuition-free public education from child care and pre-K through post-secondary colleges, trade schools, and schools and continuing adult education. Cancel existing federally held student debt. Establish an affordable interest-free federal student loan program going forward with payments scaled to income. A secure retirement. Increase Social Security benefits so that every senior can afford to retire and live above the poverty line. Racial justice. Ending systemic racism requires structural institutional changes that shift power from racist gatekeepers, controlling access to employment, education, housing, the justice system, and other resources to community control by racially oppressed communities. Community control of the police. Establish police commissions, publicly elected or selected by lot like juries, with the power to hire and fire police chiefs, Rid police forces of racists and sadists. Set policies and budgets and investigate and discipline officer misconduct. Legalize marijuana and decriminalize hard drugs. End the war on drugs that has particularly targeted Black, Latino, and Indigenous people for mass incarceration. Legalize tax and regulate marijuana like alcohol criminalize possession of hard drugs for personal use so the addicted can get treatment instead of prison. Empower racially oppressed communities. A federal program of investment in community-controlled housing, schools, health care, and businesses to build up impoverished communities, particularly racially oppressed communities that have been segregated, discriminated against, and exploited for generations. Reparations. Pass the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act, H.R. 40 and S. 1083. Peace Initiatives Take peace initiatives to end the U.S. global military empire, reduce world tensions, and create favorable conditions for negotiations towards complete and mutual nuclear disarmament under the terms of the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons the peace initiatives should include a 75% cut in U.S. military spending, withdrawing from the endless wars, withdrawing from the over 800 foreign military bases, a pledge of no first use of nuclear weapons, stopping the U.S. nuclear modernization program that is deploying destabilizing new strategic and tactical nuclear weapons, disarming to a minimum credible nuclear deterrent, A global Green New Deal providing aid for health care, education, clean water, clean energy, and environmental restoration, particularly in low income countries. Democracy Reforms The Republicans practice voter suppression through voter roll purges, discriminatory ID requirements, insufficient polling stations, and other tactics against predominantly democratic social groups and communities. The Democrats practice voter suppression by suppressing the Green Party's access to the ballot. Electronic vote recording systems are vulnerable to vote flipping. The single-member district winner-take-all system magnifies the power of pluralities and minimizes the representation of political minorities. Private campaign financing is legalized bribery by wealthy special interests. We need many reforms of the electoral system, to create full democracy based on one person, one vote. Fair ballot access. End party suppression. Federal legislation to require each state to enable any independent or new party candidate to qualify for the ballot through a petition of no greater than one-tenth of one percent of the total vote cast in the district in the last gubernatorial election, with a 1,000 signature maximum. Voting Rights and Voter Suppression Restore the preclearance provision to the Voting Rights Act. Require Department of Justice approval of state election law changes to ensure they do not discriminate against any class of voters. Universal Voter Registration A federal standard that states must follow to register all eligible voters. Right to Vote Amendment Put an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution, So, laws and rulings affecting voting rights face strict scrutiny in the courts. Restore Felon Voting Rights Felon disenfranchisement is a relic of Jim Crow era suppression of black voters that has grown with mass incarceration in recent decades to disenfranchise over six million citizens who are disproportionately black, Latino, and indigenous. The U.S. should join most of the world's democracies in recognizing that conviction-based restriction on voting rights are violations of human rights. Voter-Verified Paper Ballots A federal standard that requires all voting systems to produce a paper record of each vote that can be audited and recounted. This paper trail will provide a reliable way to check that voting machines were not compromised by human error or malfeasance. The federal standard should ban direct recording electronic, DRE, voting systems that record votes directly on electronic devices or transmit results over the Internet because they leave no way to check if votes were altered. All voting equipment, such as optical ballot scanners and software, should be publicly owned and open source for independent public inspection and testing instead of private and proprietary. Nonpartisan Election Administration The U.S. is unique among electoral democracies in having elections administered by partisans of the two governing parties. Replace partisan administration of elections with an independent nonpartisan agency to administer elections. Ranked Choice Voting and Proportional Representation Abolish the Electoral College Elect the President by a national popular vote using Ranked Choice Voting. Elect executive local and state offices by Ranked Choice Voting. Proportional representation in legislatures through Ranked Choice Voting for multi-member districts. This reform should be enacted for municipal, county, state, and federal legislatures. Establish proportional representation using Ranked Choice Voting for the House of Representatives by enacting the Fair Representation Act. H.R. 4000 Public Campaign Finance and Open Debates Full public campaign financing such that each candidate who qualifies receives an equal public campaign grant sufficient to reach the voters of their district with their message and campaigns with public money, not private money. A condition of receiving the grant is participation in a series of publicly sponsored debates. We the People Amendment Enact H.J. Resolution 48 the We the People Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to end corporate personhood by establishing that only natural human beings, not artificial corporations, are persons entitled to constitutional rights and by establishing that money is property, not protected speech. This amendment will undo the Buckley v. Valeo, Citizens United v. FEC and McCutcheon v. FEC decisions that prevent effective campaign finance regulation. The amendment will enable we the people through our elected representatives to publicly and fully regulate and finance public elections, as well as more effectively regulate corporations. Supreme Court Reform The U.S. Supreme Court has become an anti-democratic, super-legislative council of lifetime members who often create law and strike down laws created by the elected branches of government. Congress should reassert its power under the Exceptions Clause of the U.S. Constitution to regulate the composition and jurisdiction of the court, such as requiring a supermajority to annul federal laws. Congress should pass laws to restore or protect rights, such as new preclearance provisions in the Voting Rights Act and codifying Roe v. Wade to protect abortion rights. Congress should enact term limits for justices by enacting the Supreme Court Term Limits and Regular Appointments Act, H.R. 8424, which will stagger terms of 18 years to give each president two appointments per term. And that is the... Piece written by Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker, um, released on Election Day, about what are the policy priorities that they have and the Greens have going forward. And like Howie and Angela did in that piece, it's really, really important that we not only fight against all of the the bad things going on and the bad policies being put forward, the bad policies that already exist. Those are really important and critical fights, but we also need to articulate, think about, and put forward what we want to see in the future. What should the people's future look like?
1: It's yes, soon. Bring it on, bring it on. The future's coming, all like a bomb. The whole world's rocking in the beat goes on. Ready or not, we're bringing it on. The whole world's rocking in the beat goes on. The future's coming.
0: this piece is published at crimethink.com that is c r i m e t h i n c .com exercise what would an anarchist program look like every campaign season political parties publish platforms detailing their promises plank by plank these platforms are not binding Politicians rarely fulfill their promises, and it's often worse when they do. But they do offer an outline of the vision each party claims to represent. Anarchists take a different approach. Rather than offering a prefabricated blueprint, we propose to work things out together, dynamically, according to the principles of self-determination, horizontality, mutual aid, and solidarity. Still, whenever people encounter anarchist ideas for the first time, there's a certain kind of person who always demands to see a clear template. In response, one of our contributors has put together an example of an anarchist program, a set of proposals that could be put into effect in the course of a revolution, as an imaginative exercise to make it easier to picture what sort of practical changes anarchists might aim to implement. To be clear, this program does not represent our collective as a whole, nor the international anarchist movement. There should be as many such programs as there are anarchists. As you read this, reflect on what resonates and what does not. Think about what changes you want to make in the world and what means of change are consistent with your values and desires. What follows is the opposite of an ordinary political program. It is not written in stone. It does not pretend to represent a general will, the public, the people, or any such abstraction. Anarchists understand freedom as arising from an ongoing process. It is something we create individually and communally every day of our lives. In our view, it cannot be defined as a piece of paper or granted to us by a powerful institution. Each of these practices actually destroys freedom. We also believe that defining and obtaining freedom for ourselves is the best way to guarantee our well being. Anarchist analysis of capitalism, the state, patriarchy, and colonialism have proven useful in countless social struggles over the past several decades, as have our critiques of reformism, authoritarian revolution and the institutional left, and perhaps most importantly, our practices of mutual aid and self-organization. Anarchist forms of struggle have also proven compatible with a number of other struggles that have left their mark on the world, as well as influencing and informing anarchism as a living concept. We do not present a program on the premise that we could lay claim to an absolute truth, nor that this program could speak to all the visions of liberation that we act in solidarity with. Short of presenting a complete vision, we still find the need to express some vision, no matter how partial. Recent experience has shown that we cannot win a revolution that we are not even able to imagine. That is the primary purpose of this document, to aid in imagining what sort of changes we would begin working towards right now if we were able to abolish the government or create an autonomous zone. None of these are absolute truths we would want to impose, forcing everyone to support a single vision of freedom and revolution. Rather, this offers a way of envisioning principles and goals that many of us would fight for, which will inevitably shift and grow along the way as we enter into conflict and dialogue with other people and other visions. The point is not to convince everyone that our vision of freedom is the correct one. We will be most free when each of us can imagine our own best possible world in every given moment. Not even the people writing and publishing it think this document is a valid program or complete proposal. Our hope is that it will serve as a point of departure for discussions and debate helping people to articulate similar visions, conflicting visions, or visions that are simply different. The more people who imagine the world of their dreams and reflect on how countless such worlds can fit into a single world, breaking with the homogenizing Western project, the greater our collective intelligence will be. This program deals with some painful topics that no single collective has the right to decide. We concluded that it would be less harmful to address those topics imperfectly than to avoid them and pretend they don't exist. We hope that our inadequate attempts will inspire others to do better. The incompleteness of this program expresses a fundamental anarchist principle. No one can ever express everyone's needs. Whatever you find missing, it's up to you to fill it in, and up to all of us, to support each other through the process of accomplishing this together. An Anarchist Program The ends are the means. Those who support an anarchist program live and organize in a way that makes the program imminently possible, not in some distant future after a dictatorial party has acquired power. This represents a completely different way of creating power starting right now. Nothing in this program, not even the abolition of the State, can justify means of struggle that would not be at home in the world we wish to inhabit, nor the postponing of questions of freedom and well being until after some state of exception that we dress up as revolution. 1. Mutual Survival Under capitalism, no one has a right to survival. We are all forced to pay for the means of survival, and some of us can't. Millions of people die every year from easily preventable causes. Billions live in misery because they are denied the means for a healthy, dignified life. That ends now. Every person and every community has the right to their means of survival. It follows that persons and communities that choose to constitute themselves in a way that destroys others' means of survival or that withhold those means in exchange for some service, exploitation, are destroying the possibility for mutual survival. Therefore, their, quote, way of life does not constitute survival. It endangers survival. Persons and communities are right to defend themselves against exploitation or threats to their means of survival, preferably by convincing those who threaten or exploit them to change their way of life to a more harmonious, mutually feasible pattern, but also, if necessary, by force. Conflict and death have always been part of life and will remain so for the foreseeable future. With current technologies, attempts to stave off death are predicated on multiplying deaths among those who lack access to such technologies. It follows that survival is not the absence of death, but the possibility for a healthy and fulfilling life, as well as the possibility to pass something of that life on to future generations. In this sense, the opposite of life is not death, but extermination, the total annihilation of a group, including even the destruction of the memory of that group. Extermination belongs to the state. It precludes the possibility of mutual survival. 2. Decolonization Colonization is crucial to the global spread of capitalism and the devastation it has entailed. This devastation has ongoing repercussions at every level. Colonization is the basis of the United States. It has also been foundational to the major European states that functioned as the architects of the current global system of statism and capitalism. The partial revolutions of the 20th century Did not alter the basic colonial frameworks they inherited. All of this must change. Colonized peoples have a right to reconstitute their communities, their languages and knowledge systems, their territories, and their organizational systems. All of these are fluid realities that members of such communities adapt to their present needs. Settler societies must be destroyed. Because they are so historically ingrained, their abolition will not be a single moment of compensation, as though a price tag could be attached to all the suffering that has been caused. But a complex and evolving process, indigenous communities should be able to define what decolonization looks like from a position of strength and healing, such as the abolition of the United States and Canada and other nations will allow. This is also necessary to break with the gunboat diplomacy that has characterized much of settler colonialism. By definition, we cannot and will not define the limits of decolonization from the present moment from within the reality of a settler society. Anarchists, indigenous and otherwise, favor models of decolonization that break with colonial logics and repudiate nation-states, ethnic essentialism, punitive and genocidal practices, and mere reforms regarding who holds state power. Settler communities that have historically and to the present day played the role of an aggressive and hostile neighbor helping to police and exploit Native communities in the reservation system will be encouraged to disband and will be treated as paramilitaries if they continue any form of hostility. All, quote, man camps will be disbanded immediately and resources will be dedicated to helping find missing Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people. Universities, museums, and other institutions will return all bodies, body parts, art, and artifacts stolen from Indigenous communities. It is right for Indigenous communities to recover all the territory they need for their full cultural, spiritual, and material survival. Priority might be given to recovering land of spiritual importance, land that had belonged to the government, and large commercial holdings. But again, preconceived limitations should not be placed on how decolonization will unfold. Communities in countries that maintained external colonial projects, for example the United Kingdom, Spain, France, will facilitate a large-scale transfer of useful resources expropriated from their abolished governments, the wealthy, and the institutions that existed to serve the wealthy, for example, private hospitals. These resources will go to communities in the ex-colonies. 3. Reparations and Ending Anti-Blackness Anti-blackness and other forms of racism are fundamental to the current power structure. They grew out of colonialism and capitalism from the very beginning, to such an extent that capitalism is inseparable from racism, though the latter can take many forms. It is impossible to fully abolish these power structures without striking at the historically grounded legacies of racism. Communities of people largely descended from the survivors of slavery are right to take over large land holdings that had previously been plantations, as well as the excess wealth of families and institutions that profited off of slave labor. This redistribution should be carried out on a communal rather than an individual basis to avoid encouraging identitarian processes that declare individuals legitimate or illegitimate based on abstract criteria. Those who organize a collective or communal expropriation have the right to define their own experiences and how oppression has affected them historically, as well as to choose how to constitute themselves and whom to invite into their community. Historically racialized neighborhoods that have been gentrified may be reclaimed because many neighborhoods before gentrification are in fact quite diverse and working-class people of all races can lose their homes. Those who are involved in housing and anti-racist struggles at the time of the revolution may form assemblies to organize the process of inviting people back into reclaimed neighborhoods. For example, prioritizing prior residents or their children and finding ways to strike a balance between revitalizing black and other cultures of resistance and creating practices of cross-racial solidarity that break down the segregations and separations of racism. People in neighborhoods that are infrastructurally unsound or unsanitary, that suffer from environmental racism or other harmful effects that will continue causing health problems into the foreseeable future, may expropriate and move into wealthy neighborhoods, preferentially targeting the wealthiest. The prior residents of those neighborhoods may move into the vacated, substandard neighborhood with an eye towards improving it through their own effort, or they may move into other unused housing, of which there is plenty, thanks to capitalist real estate markets. Weapons taken from the disbanded police and military will be distributed among Black, Indigenous, and other racialized communities and to volunteer militias that fought unambiguously on the anti-racist side during the entirety of the revolutionary conflict. The communities will decide what is to be done with the weapons, whether to distribute, store, or dismantle them. Resources related to education and health care may be taken from wealthy neighborhoods for the benefit of racialized neighborhoods. The onus is on white anti-capitalist, or more correctly, anti-capitalists in the process of definitively breaking with their whiteness, to work with other white people to achieve a process of reparations that is as peaceful as possible, to help them move to other neighborhoods or territories in the case that they are evicted, to soften their landing and help them find the means for dignified survival without creating entrenched identities or resentment that might encourage intergenerational conflicts or keep whiteness alive. Assemblies of people committed to the relevant causes at the time of the revolution will set up truth and reconciliation committees to deal with whatever racist atrocities are brought to their attention, such as the forced sterilizations carried out in ICE facilities. The processes for uncovering the truth of these atrocities and achieving some kind of reconciliation will not be purely symbolic, and they need not delegitimize personal acts of revenge, but they will strive for some form of collective healing and transformative justice rather than punitive and carceral measures. All of the following points of the program are contingent on points one through three being put in motion in a way that is satisfactory to those who have suffered white supremacy, colonization, and racial capitalism. The rights and principles in Point 4, for example, about access to land, must not be used to thwart efforts by indigenous communities to get their land back. 4. Land The way capitalism and Western civilization have taught us to think about the land and the way to treat it has brought us to the brink of disaster. The paradigm of land as property, as a resource to be exploited, is simultaneously a failure and a travesty. The commodification of land has been instrumental to colonialism and exploitation, while the measuring, demarcation, and assertion of dominion over land has been central to the state throughout its history. Land is a living thing. Land cannot be bought and sold. Land belongs to those who belong to it, which is to say, those who take care of it and those whose survival it is based on. Land should be respected. Communities should consider the personhood of the land and all other beings that exist in relation with it. The idea that only humans of a predetermined type have personhood is responsible for a large part of the disaster we face. Land is the basis for survival, and all land is interconnected. It follows that defense of the land is self-defense and is therefore right. A community that exists in an intimate, localized relationship with the land, or a community that historically has had such relationship and proved to be good stewards of the land, will probably know best how to interrelate with a specific territory. Others should defer to them in questions regarding defending and caring for the land. It is the responsibility of all communities to aid and accompany the land as it heals from centuries of capitalism and the state. 5. Water Water is life. All communities must return the water they use to the river, lake, or aquifer as clean as they found it. All communities have a responsibility to help their watershed heal and purify itself after centuries of capitalist aggression. In view of climate change, desertification, and all the other forms of damage to the planet, all communities have a responsibility to adapt their lifeways in the event of water scarcity, and to help each other to migrate if increasing water scarcity and desertification Render a Dignified Survival Impossible In the event of water scarcity, priority for water use is given to localized forms of sustainable agriculture and to preserving the habitats of other forms of life. Polluting the water, or taking so much that others downstream or in the same aquifer do not have enough for a dignified survival, is an act of aggression. Communities should respond to assaults on their water with attempts at dialogue and negotiation. But if these attempts are fruitless, they are right to defend themselves. Borders The global system we are abolishing is based on states asserting sovereignty over clearly demarcated borders, alternately, cooperating and competing in capitalist accumulation and warfare. Nation-states have always led to cultural and linguistic homogenization and genocide, and borders have revealed themselves to be increasingly murderous mechanisms. All that, henceforth, is abolished. People and communities in concert decide what communities they want to be a part of and how they wish to be constituted, respectively. This is the principle of voluntary association. Altogether, as best we can, we will develop principles of freedom of movement balanced with a respect for the communities that are the custodians of the territories others wish to move through. These two principles necessitate the abolition of borders, on the one hand, and the abolition of individualistic entitled tourism, on the other. It is reasonable for communities which exist in relation to a specific territory to expect privacy as well as basic respect from visitors. At the same time, it is good for people to be able to move freely in search of a better life or even simply because movement brings them joy and well-being. These two rights, such as they are, may come into conflict. Communities and individuals commit to resolving those conflicts as constructively as possible. Communities commit to offering basic hospitality and safe conduct to migrants. This could include migrants who wish to return home, having been forced to emigrate by the effects of capitalism. It could include the migration of entire communities fleeing the long-term effects of environmental racism. Communities will coordinate across territories as they see fit. This could include federations organized along linguistic lines for the sake of convenience, coordinating bodies in a shared watershed, and more. Anarchists recommend redundant overlapping forms of organization as well as membership in multiple communities to resist the potentially militaristic reproduction of bordered units or essentialist identities. 7. Housing Even governments that enshrine the right to housing in their constitutions have failed to guarantee this basic need. As Malatesta pointed out, capitalism is the system in which builders go homeless because there are too many houses. Houses belong to those who live in them. No one has a right to more houses than they need. This should not be reduced to a principle of one family, one house because of the danger in normalizing one model of the family and because some dynamic families include movement between multiple nodes and to respect pastoral and other societies organized around seasonal migrations. However, this does mean that the vacation houses of the rich are fair game for expropriation for those who need access to land or decent housing. Housing is not a commodity to be bought and sold. Communities will make sure all their own members have dignified housing, and then they will help neighboring communities find the resources they need to meet their housing needs. Anarchists will encourage the transformation of housing, which capitalist real estate development and urban planning utilize specifically to promote patriarchal nuclear families. People are encouraged to change their vital spaces in a way that enables more communal practices of kinship, child-rearing practices not based in the heterosexual couple, and autonomous spaces for women and gender non-conforming people. Anarchists will make it a priority to provide safe housing for people fleeing abusive relationships and circumstances. Communities will begin immediately within their means to modify housing to be ecologically sustainable and to modify settlement patterns so that housing nuclei correspond to ecological and cultural needs, moving away from the present reality in which existing housing corresponds to the imperatives of capitalism. As this process will take decades, communities should develop plans and share ideas for organizing the transition, taking into account that there will be a rapid shift away from fossil fuels and changes in the availability of different construction materials. Evicting people from their houses is an emotionally traumatizing act that we do not want to form a part of the world we are building. However, many historically oppressed communities find themselves living in situations that directly shorten their lives, whereas the ostentatious housing of rich people represents generations of accumulated plunder. In those cases, it is better for them to take the housing of those who profited off their misery than to continue in misery. Under capitalism, there is no inalienable right to remain in a particular house. We are not carrying out a revolution in order to give rights to rich people they did not even claim under their own chosen system. 8. Food. A key aspect of capitalist accumulation has been the industrialization and hyper exploitation of food producers, both human farmers and other forms of life, trying to squeeze out an ever growing surplus. This has led to the acts of genocide associated with the commodification of the land, the total destruction of peasant societies, deforestation and monocrop deserts, mass starvation. Mass extinction, pollution, climate change, dead zones in the ocean, the destruction and commodification of communities of different living beings, the murder of living soil, and the systematized imprisonment and torture of non-human animals. How we feed ourselves is a nexus that brings together how we organize our society and the relationships we create with the broader ecosystem. Everyone has a right to all the food they need for a healthy, dignified life. Making sure that everyone has enough food is a collective responsibility. Arbitrarily placing limits on or destroying the food supply that others depend on is an assault on their survival. They may respond to this with legitimate self-defense. Workers in food production industries at the time of the Revolution will socialize the means of production, under their control, with the aim of ensuring everyone's access to food. Communities will begin the process of redistributing large tracts of farmland and reclaiming land in urban environments to enable food sovereignty and to share access to the means to feed ourselves. Agriculture will transition away from the current petroleum-dependent, highly industrialized model to a localized, ecocentric model Designed to fulfill two purposes, ensuring food security and restoring the health of the planet. The human diet will be resituated in an ecosystem, ecosystemic logic. Particularly damaging technologies like factory trawlers and animal warehouses for industrial scale meat and dairy production will be dismantled as quickly as possible. 9. Healthcare. Under capitalism and the state, healthcare has been used as a form of extortion to keep poor people in misery and in debt, to surveil, discipline, and control our bodies, and particularly to torture and control women, trans and non-binary people, racialized people, and people with different abilities and mental health difference. It is one of the most damning indictments of the present system that the practices that should focus on healing function as a venue for cruelty and profiteering. Everyone has a right to preventative therapies and living conditions that guarantee them the best possible health. Everyone has a right to define for themselves what constitutes health in dialogue with their community. People who share a collective experience or identity related to gender, sexuality, physical ability, mental health, ethnicity, or anything else may develop their own definition or ideal of health. Members of those groups are free to subscribe to those definitions or not to subscribe to them. Everyone has a right to alter their body in line with their gender expression or for whatever reason, as they see fit. People have an unrestricted right to contraceptives and abortion. No healthcare worker can be forced to perform a procedure that they do not agree with but denying someone access to a medical procedure is an assault on their bodily autonomy. Training and skills related to healthcare will be spread as widely as possible, so no one is ever in the position of gatekeeping access to health care. Everyone has a right to the full extent of treatment available to them in their community or to travel in search of better conditions or better treatment options. Healthcare workers at the time of the revolution will socialize the hospitals and other institutions and infrastructures at their disposal, and do their best to ensure continuing access to healthcare, to universalize and improve access and quality of treatment, to equalize treatment for historically marginalized populations, to facilitate reconciliation processes to address the abuse of such populations by the medical profession and to reorganize their profession to remove all capitalist influences in classist organization while still weighting internal hierarchies to favor training and experience. Trafficking in healthcare, care, including the threat to withhold healthcare, care, is an act of aggression. As part of the process of self-definition of health, anarchists will encourage the formation of assemblies that center people's own needs and experiences breaking the tradition that has established healthcare professionals as the protagonists and people as mere receptacles for illness or treatment people will share an increased knowledge of their own bodies availing themselves of the tools they need to be proactive in securing the greatest health and happiness possible 10 education public education has been used to create patriotic obedient and white supremacist civil servants, soldiers, and citizens. For even longer, Catholic education in Europe and in the colonies was used to justify colonialism and state authority. Both public and private education are linked to systematic child abuse. Contrary to classist stereotypes, people with more formal education are often more able to dismiss facts that contradict their prejudices or worldview. Education as it stands is a cornerstone of oppression. On the contrary, education should be an unending process of growth and self actualization. Anarchists have always been at the forefront of experimenting with models of liberating education that break with the standard formulas of patriotic, patriarchal, colonial, capitalist education. Knowledge must be free, it belongs to the community. Everyone must be able to access whatever educational opportunities they desire. Anarchists will encourage specific projects that end the oppressions that limit people's access to education because of their gender, sexuality, race, class, or other divisions. Examples might include intensive trainings in fields like math, sciences, and mechanics for people from groups that have historically been discouraged from entering those fields or history and literature courses that center the voices and experiences of subjects other than upper-class heterosexual white men. Such projects will also deploy a diversity of learning environments that do not assume a single normative standard of physical and mental abilities. Anarchists will help ensure that historically marginalized groups can obtain the resources they need to identify and develop the body of knowledge that is important to their specific community, and to spread it as they see fit. Children are free to engage in educational settings as they see fit in dialogue with their communities. Free children who have all their basic needs met are constantly engaged in their own education, independently of whether they do so in a formal setting. Teachers and professors who want to continue working as such May organize basic education, but anarchists will encourage the emergence of new projects based on liberating models of education rather than rote memorization or the completion of preconceived modules, especially collective self-organized self-education projects. Professions that prove to be useful and desirable after the demise of capitalism will organize educational programs to train new members of the profession expropriating resources from schools and universities or taking over teaching spaces within them in dialogue with other professions. Scientific organizations may constitute themselves to provide for professional training in universities and to maintain laboratories and peer-reviewed papers. They will discuss ways to raise the resources necessary to maintain laboratories and needed technologies without capitalizing on the process of knowledge production. One possible solution is that scientific experimentation will have to respond largely to the needs voiced by communities as a whole. The advanced education needed to become a scientist is a gift from the community to the individual. The knowledge that scientists help produce should be a gift back to the community. Scientists should also honor their responsibility to share tools for education as widely as possible. Scientific knowledge and training should not be concentrated in a few hands. Good science thrives on widespread participation in the process of research research and review. For science to live, scientists must cease to treat other human beings as objects in a petri dish and focus on equipping them to participate in that process. Scientists, teachers and other educators will facilitate reconciliation processes to deal with forms of abuse they may have been complicit in before the revolution, from facilitating police violence against students to working with corporations that caused people harm. Accredited scientists who use their knowledge to aid fossil fuel, armaments and in similar industries should be stripped of their perceived legitimacy in the same way that doctors can be delicensed for malpractice. Associations of scientists will decide if they actually need to use some form of licensing in order to assure the quality of their work. The answer may not be the same for heart surgeons as for botanists. This implies a balance between the needs of scientists to ensure standards of quality, the interests of people to prevent monopolies or gatekeepers that limit access to knowledge and training, as well as people's need for transparency, ensuring, for example, that those they entrust with their medical care or technological projects that might pollute their environment have not been dangerously negligent in the past. Associations of people will also organize to weigh in on these decisions. 11. Production Under capitalism, production is one of the chief means of accumulating capital for the wealthy through alienated work, exploitation, and the destruction of the environment. In anarchy, the only question is how to meet socially defined needs, which include everything from collective survival to the need people feel to grow and enjoy life. Ex workers will seize their workplaces at the earliest convenience, studying whether the workplace factory, workshop, office, store, restaurant, etc. can be modified to produce something socially useful in a healthy way. If not, the workplace will be dismantled and its resources shared out among ex-workers, neighboring communities, and useful workplaces. Ex-workers excluding managers while welcoming unemployed people with pertinent skills who had been denied access to employment under capitalism will create some form of collective, cooperative, or communal structure to organize their workplaces, federating with other workplaces across their industry in order to oversee the production of socially useful goods. Delegates within these productive federations must be beholden to a specific collective mandate promoting positions that arise from their base assembly. They must be immediately recallable if they fail that mandate and they must continue to exercise their craft. Workplace assemblies will decide if delegates must carry out their normal work on a daily basis or if they may be excused for a limited number of months before returning to normal work, as demanded by the conditions of their work and the needs of the federative labor. For example, delegates may have to travel long distances and might not be able to work during certain periods. Those who wish to be professional representatives doing no other work but that of bureaucrats and politicians may form their own federations of representatives in which to go about representing themselves and others to the best of their abilities. For this purpose, it is recommended that they paint their faces white, don berets, and striped shirts, travel from community to community, and hold their committee meetings open to the public. People don't need bureaucrats, but we will always need entertainment. No one may be forced to work. Communities and productive federations will do their utmost to operate according to a logic of abundance rather than a logic of scarcity or monopoly. People who wish to carry out productive or creative labors in a more individual setting or manner will be encouraged to do so. And insofar as it is possible, they will be afforded the space and resources they need, though in moments of absolute scarcity, such as the difficult years of the transition, Communities may prefer to favor more effective collective workplaces that are immediately responding to a community need. The gendering of different productive activities is abolished. Anarchists encourage their communities to reflect on how different useful, necessary, and beneficial activities are unequally recognized and rewarded with status and propose initiatives or new traditions by which to to eliminate these vestiges Of patriarchy ex-workers are encouraged to fully transform their workplaces deconstructing machinery into its component tools if need be in order to work at a safer pace and create an environment that is healthy in terms of noise air quality chemicals and non-repetitive labors workplaces will strike a balance between the creative or productive desires of the members the needs of surrounding communities and the needs of society as a whole. This means encouraging artisans in their creative development, making sure not to pollute nearby communities with harmful chemicals or excessive noise, and seeking to create things that others in society need, though embracing the logic of abundance means giving this latter directive the broadest possible interpretation, except in cases of acute scarcity that threaten a community's survival. Destructive energy infrastructure will be phased out at the safest pace possible. Experts in the relevant fields will be encouraged to oversee the shutting down of nuclear power plants, according to a schedule that leaves the smallest amount of highly radioactive waste and the plugging of oil wells so they do not contaminate groundwater. On a less urgent timeline, communities will explore the decommissioning of highly destructive green energy projects that endanger river populations, migratory birds, and other living things. This work will depend on the development of localized ecological energy production and the drastic reduction of overall energy use, a part of which is the redesigning of buildings to allow for passive solar heating and cooling, a demanding endeavor that cannot be accomplished in a single decade. Communities will decide what technologies and what kinds of scientific experimentation and development they will support. However, in all cases, communities and scientific organizations involved must be able to absorb or remediate all the negative consequences of that technology. There is no justification for mining someone else's territory or creating toxic substances that future generations will have to deal with. 12. Distribution, Communication, and Transportation Localizing power in people and communities has an adjunct in organizing the material means of survival on as local a level as possible, for example through principles like food sovereignty. However, the danger of dependence on an exploitative socioeconomic system decreases dramatically when people can meet most of their survival needs through the resources and activity of a small local network of communities. For the remainder of those needs, as well as all the things that make life more enjoyable, it may be necessary to organize distribution across multiple regions of a continent and beyond. Additionally, travel is extremely important in an anarchist society to inculate a global consciousness, encourage reciprocity and solidarity, Prevent the emergence of borders and collectivize knowledge as much as possible. All state-backed currencies are abolished. All monetary debts are cancelled. Exchange of goods between communities shall be done in as equitable a manner as possible. Communities in close contact may prefer a free exchange or gift economy. Communities without the basis of trust that makes a gift economy easier to practice may decide to use quid pro quo trade, but trading up for profit, serial trading to capture a growth of value, or charging interest on the lending of goods can be considered attempts at coercion and exploitation. Communities should pursue food sovereignty, meeting the majority of their survival needs from their local land base. But beyond that, Infrastructure should be maintained to encourage exchange and travel. Transport workers, together with affected communities, will collaborate to transform existing transportation infrastructure to be as ecologically sustainable as possible, while other infrastructures, for example airports and highways, are to be dismantled. Already extracted fossil fuel reserves and existing infrastructures will be rationed, giving priority to the transition in agricultural production, global reparations of resources, and maintaining connectivity in rural areas with no transportation alternatives. Communities, transportation workers, and those involved in fighting against patriarchal violence at the time of the Revolution will work together to make sure that people can travel freely and safely, regardless of their gender. Communities that enable or permit violence against women or gender non-conforming people traveling through their territory are considered to be in aggression against the rest of the world. Communities will do their best to maintain existing communications infrastructure so they can remain in touch to communicate globally and share the experiences of their respective revolutionary processes. In the long term, they will explore ways to maintain those infrastructures they find useful with recycled or non-harmful materials. They will also study whether addictive and depressive behaviors related to social networking technologies are intrinsic to those technologies, or a maladaptive response to the alienations of capitalism. 13. Conflict Resolution and Transformative Justice Prisons and police have existed for far too long, destroying people and communities. There are ways to deal with the inevitable conflicts of social existence that see people as capable of growth, redemption, and healing, and that are organized to meet the needs of the community rather than to protect the system of oppression and inequality. The revolution is a process of destroying state power. It is also a process of the rebirth of real communities. Capitalism forced us to be dependent on its mechanisms for our survival. But once it is abolished, our survival once again becomes something we create, collectively. Communities are reconstituted through the assemblies and other spaces through which they organize their territory and the survival of their members. A part of this means being accountable to the community on which our survival depends, and taking part in the healthy resolution of conflicts, the healing of harm, and the restoring of reciprocal relations. Communities will do their best to enable fluid ways of being and relating to that break with the closed, patriarchal, and micro-oppressive structures that have been traditional in many places. However, no leeway need be given to the dominant concept of fluidity of Late capitalism, in which people move through space without ever acknowledging their relations, their impacts on others, or the simple fact that their survival is not their personal property. People involved in mediation, conflict resolution, and transformative justice will share resources and encourage communities to deal with conflict and harm in a restorative way that promotes healing and reconciliation We will also make sure that the burden of this work does not fall disproportionately along gender lines. Communities will define norms and boundaries around harmful behaviors, but anarchists will encourage them to develop practices that center dialogue and processes of healing and reconciliation, rather than codification of prohibited behaviors and punishment. Communities that already have traditions of mediation and reconciliatory processes are encouraged to share their experience as they see fit. All prisons will be dismantled with communities taking in ex-prisoners who had been convicted of harming other people and committing to working with them on exploring the circumstances around the harm. Committees of people experienced in transformative justice will work with ex-prisoners who are not taken in and vouched for by any community, together with the communities harmed by them, to try to find a solution. Given that the total opposition to prisons is not a widespread position, anarchists will organize debates on other possible responses to the worst scenarios of harm, the small minority of cases in which people repeatedly kill, abuse, or victimize others. One possible proposal is to always favor reconciliation with all resources available, but to never delegitimize autonomous acts of self-defense or revenge, especially in cases in which reconciliation is not a realistic outcome. Special attention will be given to all acts of gender and sexual violence, especially those that had been normalized under the patriarchal punitive regime that is to be abolished. People active in opposing such violence will suggest appropriate structures and practices for communities to adopt. 14. Safety The state thrives on the lie that security and freedom constitute a dichotomy, two things that exist in inverse proportion, and that we must sacrifice each in equal measure to strike a balance between them. Because security is connected with survival, the state can convince us that we would not be able to enjoy what little freedom we have if we did not prioritize security and accept its protection. In truth, our survival, our safety, and our freedom all depend on how well we can take care of one another, not how high we build walls around ourselves. As long as states exist, even only as a projection in the minds of the power-hungry, We will need to defend ourselves from those who would subjugate and exploit us sometimes we will also need to defend ourselves from those who cause harm by not recognizing others boundaries not empathizing with others or not realizing the consequences of their own actions how we organize our defense can be dangerous to our freedom it is also a challenge to conceive of dangers and conflicts in a way that transforms us and others rather than fixing our antagonists as permanent enemies we need to destroy. All police forces are abolished and their members should participate in reconciliation processes to address the harm they have caused. Those who refuse may be viewed as statist paramilitaries. Communities may create some kind of volunteer service to protect against various forms of aggression or interpersonal harm. However, To prevent anything like a police force from emerging, whatever form this service takes, it must focus on de-escalation and reconciliation rather than punishment. It should focus on calling out the rest of the community to deal with the conflict or instance of harm rather than monopolizing the response. And the participants must not have special privileges in terms of the right to use force or access to weapons that the rest of the community does not have. Communities are encouraged to create some kind of protective group, tradition, or structure specifically designed to respond to and deal with gender violence in all its forms. They may wish this force to be composed of people other than cis men. Because the state will not be abolished everywhere at once, and because many communities with hierarchical values may continue to exist and may try to subordinate neighboring communities to their will, there may be a need to create anarchist militias or other fighting units, both to defend a free territory and to engage in revolutionary warfare against a statist imperialist territory. To deserve the terms, quote, free militia and revolutionary warfare, these must be dedicated to several key principles that distinguish them from statist armies. Simply tacking on a red flag is not enough. The fighters must be volunteers. They must be able to choose their own leaders and leadership structures. There must be no officers with aristocratic privileges. The entirety of the force must decide together on acceptable measures of discipline. Assemblies that transcend the free militias, for example, federations of the communities from which the fighters come, will decide the broad strategic objectives and guidelines for humanitarian conduct. In other words, the militias must not be fully autonomous. They exist to defend the needs of broader communities, rather than dominating those communities or promoting their own interests on anything but a tactical level. Free militias will avoid the logic of territorial aggressive warfare, in which the objective is to conquer a space defined as enemy territory. The purpose should either be defensive warfare, defending the communities and dissuading others from attacking, or revolutionary warfare, supporting people in an oppressive society who are fighting for their own freedom. In the latter case, the initiative must come from those oppressed people and must not be organized primarily by the militias of a neighboring territory. Free communities do not try to eliminate or, not, or annihilate enemies. They defend their freedom and dignity and support others who are doing so, and then they try to make friends or, at the very least, make peace. Safety in an anarchist framework is not the protection of the weak by the strong. It is the empowerment and cultivated capacity for self-defense of all, with priority given to those whose gender socialization, racialization, or physical and psychological difference has specifically disempowered them under current oppressive conditions. Peace, in an anarchist framework, is not simply the absence of armed conflict, especially when such absence indicates acquiescence to oppression. Peace is an outgrowth of happiness, freedom, and self-actualization, which we hope this program will foster more than capitalism ever has, in a proactive effort. Anarchists will encourage communities to engage and exchange not just with their immediate neighbors, but transcontinentally, sharing and creating cultural bonds, affinities, and friendships on a global scale so as to make the wars of conquest and annihilation that states have been practicing for millennia inconceivable. 15. Community Organization and Coordination In opposition to involuntary citizenship and dictatorial or representative decision-making, that imposes homogenizing laws on all of society. Anarchism posits the principles of voluntary association and self-organization, meaning people are free to form themselves into groups of their choosing, to organize those groups as they see fit, and to order their lives on a daily basis, with everyone's participation. Every community is autonomous and free to organize its own affairs. Every community should develop its own methods and structures of organization and subsistence. Anarchists encourage models that prioritize well-being and prevent the re-emergence of statist organization, including the gift economy within communities and overlapping redundant forms of organization that prevent the centralization of power, such as combinations of federated territorial assemblies, workplace assemblies, infrastructural organizations, and professional and educational organizations. The goal is to tie people together in a multiplicity of organizational spaces. This way many different organizational models and cultures can be practiced. Since none are neutral or equally accessible to everyone, conflict is mediated by multiplying relationships through numerous organizational and territorial bonds, and the emergence of a political class that is skilled in manipulating assemblies and that thrives in the alienated space of politics, is discouraged. If there is no central space where all decisions and authority are legitimated, no matter how participatory that space pretends to be, there can be no political class. This is a difference between democracy and anarchy, not to mention the fact that anarchism has historically opposed slavery, capitalism, patriarchy, imperialism, and the like whereas democracy has often relied upon them. In order to prevent the return of authoritarian dynamics in the guise of democracy, anarchists would do well to facilitate community processes exploring how formal and informal mechanisms of decision-making distribute gendered power and how vital informal non-legitimized spaces are to the organization of daily life but also identifying which informal spaces enable the centralization of power and studying how different ways of organizing, opening, and diffusing formal spaces can serve to prevent rather than facilitate the centralization of power. As a general rule, the only time it is acceptable to intervene in the affairs of a neighboring community is in matters of self-defense when they do not respect their neighbor's need for freedom and a dignified survival. When a community does not respect its members' need for food, water, shelter, health care, and bodily integrity, it is good for neighboring communities to offer those members support and refuge. The neighboring communities may support efforts by oppressed or exploited members of the first community to end their oppression, but liberation must always be the task of those who are most directly affected by oppression. Communities should try to avoid intervening directly or forcefully and the affairs of their neighbors. Communities should strive to accept the inevitable differences they have with their neighbors, aiming to foster relations of a dialogue and peace. In the case of communities that do not respect the dignity and survival of others, it may be preferable to seek mediation or cut off connections rather than escalating to physical conflict. Many communities will find the need or the desire to join in larger associations for matters of culture, production, and distribution, and in order to share common resources. It is preferable to form free federations or associations that maintain power at the local level, while also creating multiple cross-cutting organizational ties so that every person in every community is a member of multiple groups. For example, the coordinating body to protect a shared watershed, a cultural linguistic grouping, a scientific association and university system, a producers' and consumers' union for sharing resources, and a territorial confederation. In this way, each community has a richer web of relationships, and in the case of conflicts, disputes do not fracture into two belligerent sides, but everyone is tied together by other relationships, so there is an abundance of mediators and general interest in preserving the peace. 16. The Planet Capitalism has brought the planet to the brink of collapse. It is not enough to destroy capitalism. We must also uproot the capitalist, western way of relating with the land in favor of healthy, reciprocal, ecocentric relations. And we must do everything possible to heal the planet and all living communities that share it. It is our responsibility to help the planet heal and help ensure the survival and continuity of all living communities. Communities will tend to their territories as best they can to remediate the destruction and pollution caused by capitalism, to identify and protect species and ecosystems that are in danger, to promote the rewilding of spaces, to conceive of themselves as part of the ecosystem. Communities and scientific associations will pool resources and share information in order to track problems of global concern, such as greenhouse gases, vulnerable species, dead zones, and plastic pollution in the oceans, radiation, and other forms of long-term pollution. They will set targets and make recommendations to specific communities and territorial confederations, with the goal of ameliorating these problems as thoroughly and fairly as possible. Glossary Community A community is a group of people who live together, mutually creating their material and cultural survival. Because communities define and organize themselves, it is difficult to give them a specific definition. In some cases, community refers to the smaller group, between 30 and 150 people, that coordinates more closely for the organization of daily affairs, taking advantage of the small numbers and close relationships to decide their affairs smoothly and horizontally. In other cases, it can also refer to the supra-community of several, dozens, or even hundreds of communities that share common languages and culture in an identification with the territory, and that coordinate frequently for matters of subsistence, infrastructure, education, and other matters. In some cases in the text, living communities does not refer exclusively to humans, but to all living things that exist in a web of relationships. Excess Wealth Communities should decide for themselves what constitutes excess wealth or a wealthy person. However, the intention in this text is not at all to follow in the footsteps of left-wing populism and focus our disapproval on billionaires or even millionaires. On the contrary, we feel the bar should be set much lower. For determining wealthiness, we suggest the guidepost is having three times more wealth than is average in a given geographical region, for example, those making more than three times the average wage in the country before the abolition of capitalism and nation-states. Excess wealth after the abolition of money is everything a wealthy person possesses that is not necessary for their dignified survival, especially what they had used to ostentatiously set themselves apart from the average. Managers A manager is someone whose job it is to monitor and discipline other workers in order to increase their productivity and facilitate their exploitation. At each workplace, people can decide whether a person did something genuinely useful before the revolution, and whether a part or the whole of their job category can be redeemed. Rights. In this document, we do not use the concept of rights in the Christian or liberal fashion as a set of properties guaranteed by God or nature, nor in the statist fashion, as a list of opportunities that a state must safeguard for all its citizens. We mean it strictly in an anti-authoritarian ethical sense, things that we consider it right for people to have, to take, or to defend, so much so that we would fight alongside them to help them protect or recover these things if they were threatened. Territory We do not understand territory as a dead two-dimensional space demarcated on a map with borders and a fixed area. Territory is the earth. It is alive. It is a web of relationships. The only rightful claim people have to a specific territory is if they are a part of that web of relationships and help keep the web vibrant and alive. Because memory is an important part of knowing and respecting a territory. People who had a strong relationship with a territory and were forced off that land still have a relationship with the territory. Additionally, territory implies movement. This is not a proposal for allocating equal parcels to roughly interchangeable communities. All territory is specific, and the healthiest way to relate with the territory will change from region to region. Nomadic or semi-nomadic lifeways are just as legitimate just as intimately connected with the territory as sedentary ones. Following this logic, claims to territory can and do do overlap, with different groups carrying out different activities related to subsistence, spirituality, play, and the like at different moments and in different ways. Transition The only kind of transition referred to in this document describes the transformation of existing capitalist infrastructure into the kind of infrastructure suited to a free society. This is simply a recognition that it will involve difficulties and a great deal of effort to make universal food, housing and health care a reality by means of infrastructures and productive practices that do not harm the planet. We do not contemplate any kind of transitional state. The state never fades away. It must be destroyed. Workers. Under capitalism, workers designates an alienated category. We are those who sell our activity in order to buy back a small part of the value we produce. We are the ones who carry out the labor that gives society life, yet it is important to emphasize that we do not seek to identify with our alienation, the quality that makes us workers, but rather to abolish it. Especially since under capitalism, work creates so many useless or harmful things and is organized in a way that tends to be terrible for our health. Ex-workers, then, are those who had been forced to be workers under capitalism, but who, with the abolition of capitalism, abolished the category of wage work and other compulsory labors. They may deserve some special legitimacy when it comes to expropriating the resources of their former workplace or industry. Like everyone else, they are engaged in the endeavor of transforming human activity in order to create abundance for all and to blur the distinctions between learning, work, and play. And that wraps up this look at an anarchist program and also wraps up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can find out more and check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can listen to this and all of my podcasts playing live 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And now, your moment of Zen. Thanks for listening.
1: Emma Goldman was not being taught, and I, so I decided my students had to know something about uh, anarchism and about Emma Goldman uh, and her friends and w- when I started to teach at Boston University, I attended one of those they when you start to teach somewhere, they have a reception for new faculty members, uh, which is always very boring <laughs> and the, the and at, at this reception for new faculty members, I, I, I found myself uh, sipping sherry with um, another new faculty member who was going to be in, well, what questions you ask, what department will you be in? He's going to be in the philosophy department. What department will I be in? Well, I was going to be in the political science department. Ah, and what is your political philosophy, he asked you're not supposed to ask that of somebody in the political science department I never heard of anybody in the political science department who had a political philosophy you see Uh, it's not professional Uh, but I thought I had to come up with something so I I said uh, I guess I'm an anarchist and he looked at me and he said, "That's impossible." <laughs> anyway, so um, anarchism is still not taught. it's interesting. It teach political theory, political philosophy, all long lists of political theorists and. Phlo- anarchists and anarchism,, you know, still doesn't have a recognition as a political philosophy. So it's an important thing for people to look at and, and for people to read. From living my life from Emma, Emma Goldman's autobiography, I went on to, to Alexander Berkman's Prison Memoirs of An anarchist, uh, which has been out of print for a long time, but there's a new uh, sort of edition which has most of it in other Berkman's writings, which is published by a little publishing outfit in Manhattan called... Uh, Four walls, eight windows. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, and then what? Oh, and then I was in Amsterdam. Uh, and, and, and because I was in Amsterdam, I decided to look up the International Institute of Social History, which uh, if you ever go to Amsterdam, and I'm sure all of you will soon go to Amsterdam. Uh, you will find in the International Institute of Social History a wonderful collection of documents, materials, letters from and to all sorts of people. And, uh, and you know, they collected stuff from the, from the Nazi archives. I, that doesn't mean the Nazi, th- that is from Germany, which the Nazis had secreted away and didn't want anybody to look at, you know, like Karl Marx's early letters. Uh, there's no point really secreting them away because nobody could ever read Marx's handwriting but they, they have stuff and then I had this collection of Emma Goldman of letters to and from uh, Emma Goldman a wonderful collection so I spent uh, days and days and days sitting there uh, in Amsterdam uh, copying pieces of these letters and then I get home and I find that Richard Drennan has already done that <laughs> and has published a lot of that. He and his wife Anna Marie published to publish that in a book, which also you should read. Uh, I'm telling you all of this. I'm giving you this bibliographical information because I can't, there's not much I can tell you in a short time about that fantastically rich and complex life. And so, you know, you really have to go and, and read stuff for yourself. And, and